A stunning warning coming from the economist of a large and storied investment bank. According to Albert Edwards, corporate profiteering has become so outrageous that it could trigger the end of capitalism itself. Lee Edwards writes about how companies have used the excuse of inflation to jack up prices an astonishing amount, such that this greedflation is itself causing far larger price spikes than any other factor. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 31 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversations. You know, one of the real burdens of this podcast is not coming up with brilliant ideas or smart things to say, but rather to how to respond to those brilliant things and how they have given rise to other people saying things that everyone hails as being brilliant but forgot to include me on the list of brilliant people. All right, that's pretty clumsy. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are times I wish I could say I told you so. I am a bit taken about how my argument for using the 14th Amendment for the debt crisis, for example, from a couple of weeks ago, has now been elevated all the way to the White House briefing room and the words actually coming out of the president's mouth and a press conference by a bunch of senators. I mean, episode 28 is not really that far uh, uh, far back. And I didn't, let's face it, I did not invent this idea, but I did kind of say maybe we should give it more serious thought. But anyway, Biden didn't mention me when he was talking about it, the Bum should have included me. Anyway, back in March of last year, there's another example of this. March of last year, I wondered about how much the inflation that we were experiencing back then, and I say back then because prices have come down quite a bit, thanks Joe Biden, um, how much it was attributable to not any actual thing going on in the economy, but what we all thought was happening. This is a snippet of what I said then on my show, The Middle. Amazon's quarterly profits were up 75%, $35 billion. Netflix quarterly profits were up 96%. Nike's quarterly profits last quarter were up 125%. FedEx is up 307%. And so I say to you that, okay, there are some things out there that are driving prices up, but at what point do you start to say, huh, I wonder if these companies are using the, the, the sense that we have that, okay, prices are going up to make the prices not only go up what they need to for them to make a profit, but use it as an opportunity to squeeze us for every last time. That was from March of 2022, and inflation was not nearly what it was then, but it not anywhere near the 2% benchmark the Fed likes. But now this concept that I kind of hinted at there – and did a whole episode on, to be honest, has a name. They call it greedflation. And it's being taken pretty seriously by real economists. A former Fed chair coined another term for it in January in a piece that he wrote, called it the price-price spiral. In March, the chief economist at UBS Global Wealth really lit a flame to this idea. He's no flaming liberal, speaking of that when he wrote about what he called, quote, the profit margin-led inflation. But I'm like, I like greedflation, and I'm going to stick with it. So I don't have an economist here to explain it, so I'll try. After COVID, there were lots of reasons that companies would experience higher costs and thus have to raise prices. The now-famous supply chain problems, the inability to get parts from place one to place B, and often the shortages of those parts because of factories being closed or workers being sick. Sometimes it was an oddball thing like 
So many people were ordering things online that had to be shipped from overseas during COVID that shipping containers were not available for a while because they were all on our side of the water. Also, we had labor shortages with people either staying home because of local regulations or people just not wanting to go to work. And then there was this little matter of this war that wrecked havoc on two of the building blocks of prices, oil from Russia and wheat from Ukraine. And then you throw in the huge fiscal stimulus plan that literally sent cash to almost every American and pumped millions of dollars into businesses. I mean, you have lots and lots of reasons for inflation if you are an economist trying to look for the blame. But the vital element in what made greedflation possible is the nonstop drumbeat of how crazy the inflation was. From the media, from candidates for office, after a generation that saw kind of no inflation, I mean, let's face it, we went a very long time without it. Suddenly, it was all anyone was talking about. I got to get a mortgage to buy my kid diapers. The, this Easter, I'm not going to be painting potatoes. I, I can't afford them. I'm going to paint eggs. <laughs> what they said was, I'm not going to paint eggs. I'm going to paint potatoes. I mean, the jokes on late night TV, the political ads... And so the question was, what if this common understanding that inflation is out of control came to influence consumers to pay more when otherwise they might balk at those high prices? I mean, under normal circumstances, companies have what economists call weak pricing power, meaning that what stops them from raising prices is the weak hold they have on consumers and their need to keep people coming back, repeat customers. Companies price, company prices, um, a company that raises their prices by a lot, customers walk and they don't come back. So that puts this downward pressure on prices. In addition, there's competition. But what if the price rise was somehow understandable or it even seemed inevitable to consumers? What if the company doesn't even need to tell the story themselves because it was so obvious everyone was talking about it? Hell, they had to raise prices. We heard and saw signs of this uh, in uh, euphemistic earnings calls during the during COVID and thereafter, during the height of inflation, we heard you know c- uh, corporate executives talk about how customers were quote accepting price increases, and of course we all know that profits, as I described in that cut, profits are through the roof. Did this create somehow this permission structure that companies rarely enjoy? Was there like a suspension of normal patterns of consumers to sort of turn their sensibility off to price increases? And did that lead companies to essentially raise prices because, you know, price rises were kind of accepted and expected? Right there is greedflation. Now, obviously, mine wasn't the first take on this back in March of last year. I want to point that out. I was talking about it in March of last year. In late 2021, an economist called Isabella Walker from UMass Amherst wrote about how corporate profits were keeping inflation high. She got the crap kicked out of her by her colleagues in academia. Now everyone from Paul Krugman to the Wall Street Journal are kind of saying they're mea culpas and giving this idea its due. But why does it matter? Well, for one thing, it's a very different problem than the Fed is fighting, right? We actually, the Fed thinks, wants lower wage growth to hold down inflation, and that's bad for workers. 
So we keep pumping up the cost of money in hopes that the economy will cool, as they say. But now even the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, is starting to rethink this. He said earlier this month that wages were not the principal driver in inflation, which was a departure from his previous position. Now, he hasn't come all the way around to blame excessive corporate profits, but he doesn't really have to. Perhaps the way to combat greedflation is to change the part of the formula that makes it possible. Educate consumers about what's going on. If corporations think they can get away with inflation-driven increases because consumers sort of expect it, maybe as consumers get to know this for what it is, greed and greed alone, they will do what they were assumed to do in the past, which is basically rebel and stop buying those products, forcing companies to rethink greedflation. A way to accelerate this process is for the few Americans who aren't listening to this podcast or reading economic journals, is for someone like the President of the United States to announce a series of taxes to make companies and their insanely wealthy owners pay their fair share. A true corporate minimum tax, a wealth tax perhaps, a higher tax on stock buybacks, all the things that shine a bright light on the high profits that belie the myth that, cons- that companies are struggling like the rest of us with the high inflation rate. Now, that is something that Joe Biden has been doing in the context of the debt increase debate. But let me be clear about one thing. Inflation is high, but it's not as high when I, as it was, obviously, when I did that riff over a year ago. It's more, it's closer to the 2% that will be necessary to convince the Fed that it can stop raising interest rates. The Labor Department reported that the consumer price index, the famous CPI, rose 4.9% last month, down from 5% in March. On a monthly basis, the CPI was only up 0.4% compared to March. And the last time inflation was below 5%, it was June 2021. Things are undoubtedly getting better. Like I said, thanks, Joe Biden. But no, no thanks to the greed inflationeers. And we'll be right back with Listener Mail. So in Listener Mail, we like to go look at the various ways we have of getting feedback. Obviously, being a podcast, we get it on email, um, which is wienerwabc at gmail.com. We have a, a Twitter account, Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R, Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook. Um, so there are plenty of ways to, to reach out. And um, But what we've started to do increasingly on this show, and this is our 31st episode, is to take the voices that we hear on the airwaves here at WABC 770 Talk Radio and talk back to them. Sometimes it's a host. Sometimes it's a guest. Sometimes it's a news story that we hear. Um, we've extended it to other politicians. And today we're going to get a question that is from... My boss, John Katsimatidis. Take a listen. Between us, why did it take Durham so long to get it done? I have no friggin' idea. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So there, John, is interrogating and questioning um, Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina. I think Lindsey Graham has become a fairly well-known figure in the country. He was someone that was a candidate for president himself in 2016. I don't know if he actually made it to 2016. He was a very f- uh, fervent critic of um, Donald Trump, 
an ally of the late John McCain. The two of them were virtually inseparable. But recently, he has become an all-purpose Trump apologist. But they're asking there, talking about the Durham report. And in order to give you the the context of the Durham report, which is um, which came out uh, this month, I wanted to, to first give you a little bit of history because there's a reason that people like John and Lindsey Graham are commenting about how long it took for the Durham report to come out because this has been an ongoing question. Um, there was back in June, first of all, let's reset the table, 2016, an election um, that saw the or saw Russian interference, helped by the um, FBI director John Comey, uh, uh, James Comey, opening up an investigation into Hillary Clinton days before the election that many people think tipped the election um, in favor of Donald Trump. Um, the, the he closed that investigation days later. I was intimately involved in that. It led to June 2018, an inspector general report looking at what went down in the campaign of 2016, 568 pages. It went through every email and every document and interviewed dozens and dozens of people. Inspectors general are people that are in departments but don't work for the department. Their job is to do oversight and to do audits and to do reports on what things went right and what's wrong. They're considered to be nonpartisan. Um, so the IG report comes out in June of 2018, 568 pages. It's a lot of pages to summarize, but it basically said that James Comey acted improperly, that they blamed Anthony Weiner's laptop, but in fact, they had plenty of time to look at that laptop to find out that there was nothing on it of note. They made note that while they talked openly about Hillary Clinton being under investigation, they hid the fact that Donald Trump was also under investigation at the time. Then in March 2019 is the famous Mueller report. Um, Mueller was appointed um, by the attorney general under Donald Trump, um, 448 pages talking about the, um, the efforts by the Russians to interfere. And it was a special counsel investigation that revealed enormous amount, 37 people, 37 indictments, seven guilty pleas or convictions, compelling evidence that the president obstructed the, the uh, uh, Donald Trump obstructed justice on multiple occasions, referred 14 criminal matters to the Justice Department. Trump associates were found to have repeatedly lied to investigators about their contacts with Russians. President Trump refused to answer questions about his efforts to impede the proceedings. A statement signed by over 1,000 former federal prosecutors concluded that if any other American engaged in the same effort to impede federal proceedings the way Trump did, they likely would have been indicted. They found that Russia engaged in extensive attacks on the U.S. election in 2016. They called it sweeping and systematic. Major attacks include information warfare campaign that favored Donald Trump, and they hacked Hillary Clinton's databases. Russia also targeted the databases of state agencies. They identified, the Mueller report identified numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign, and they established as fact that the Trump campaign showed an interest in WikiLeaks' release of documents and welcomed their damage to Clinton. In 2015 and 16, uh, Michael Cohen and then-candidate Trump personally signed a letter of intent for a project in Moscow. 
They found that senior members of the Trump campaign, including Paul Manafort, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, took place in meetings with Russian nationals. After an outreach from an intermediary informed them that the Russians had derogatory information on Clinton and it was part of Russia's government attempt to support Donald Trump. This is all the Mueller report now. The Mueller report found that um, beginning in 2016, they contacted the Trump campaign uh, and let them know that officials, uh, that WikiLeaks would release information damaging to Clinton that had been, that had been hacked by the Russians. The Mueller report reported that on multiple occasions where Trump associates lied to investigators about contacts with the Russians, those associates, George Papanopoulos, Rick Gates, Michael Flynn, Michael Cohen, all admitted they made false statements to investigators or to Congress. The Mueller report also contains um, no evidence that uh, Trump campaign official reported their contacts with Russia or WikiLeaks to U.S. law enforcement as they're required to do. I mean, Special Counsel Mueller declined to exonerate Donald Trump and instead detailed multiple episodes in which he engaged in obstructive conduct. As a matter of fact, the report explicitly says that it does not, in quotes, does not exonerate the president and explains that the Office of Special Counsel accepted the Justice Department policy of not indicting a sitting president. The Mueller report details multiple episodes in which there's evidence that President Trump obstructed justice. They had five in particular that they that they laid out that were particularly serious. I won't read them all, but you probably remember them by now. He directed his White House counsel to fire the special counsel. He asked John, uh, James Comey to let Flynn off when, uh, when, when Flynn was in trouble. He intended to prevent future scrutiny by, um, by, by uh, limiting the Mueller investigation. So that's the Mueller report, and that's March of 2019. It's all about the... In, the, the the, the effort of the Russians to help out Donald Trump and the efforts of the Donald Trump campaign to accept that help. Um, and that's March of 2019. And you might be wondering, how does this get back to the question about, about dirt? Well, it, you probably aren't wondering that. So later on in December of 2019, there was another Inspector General report that focuses specifically on how the Trump investigation was open. Remember, there's all this question about about, you know, the Steele dossier, a fake thing that the Clintons did it, that the, that the forces that want to bring him down. But, it, you know, no, in 478 pages, it reiterated something that had been public but became, you know, kind of enshrined in the, in the official answer. A foreign government had called us and said that it had heard Russia had approached a Trump campaign official about helping them defeat Hillary and, and embarrass Obama. Um, was it open because of the Steele dossier? No, that didn't, hadn't even reached anyone until well after. So that's December of 2019. And then finally, we have the Durham report. And it's 316 pages. It's four years later. And what is his record besides spending at least $7 million? That was the last report we had. Well, he brought two cases. Remember, he's a prosecutor. That's his job is to prosecute. He brought two cases and lost them both. One guy pleaded guilty to altering an email and didn't get any prison time. Now, he was hired by Trump's attorney general to find the origins of the FBI investigation of the links between Russian officials and Trump's 2006 campaign. And if that sounds like a review of the IG report I just described, it kind of was. But it was um, what it really was, was a way, and they pretty much said this, was a way to give weight to the Russia hoax story. Um, now, it doesn't give any weight to that. 
Um, you know, but it does succeed in confusing people. Look at that question that led us here. This was a criminal probe under special rules covering special counsels. A criminal probe. So much of the report was kind of like apologizing for not uncovering anything to prosecute or for coming up so short and only bringing two cases and losing them both. Remember, Donald Trump promised that this was the crime of the century that was going to finally be revealed. Instead, in the Durham report, 316 pages of it, he wandered all over the map and he even included 17 pages of recommendations of how politically sensitive investigations should be handled in the future. He even interviewed Hillary Clinton in this report about how the investigation of Donald Trump got started. I mean, it should be no wonder if you if you just heard what went on in the, in the Mueller report. Um, but it should be noted that there are a lot of people who thought that this guy was such a joke that they wouldn't even agree to talk to him. James Comey, for example, refused to talk to him. Former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, refused to talk to him. The senior FBI agent for national security at the time, William Priestap, refused to talk to him. This investigator, Glenn Simpson, he refused to talk to him. And at the end, this report is a chock-a-block of everything but proof of wrongdoing. And he even said so as much. His biggest earth-shattering conclusion, the FBI, he says, should have opened a preliminary investigation into Trump instead of a full investigation. I kid you not. That was part of his rec- his uh, recommendation, probably his biggest recommendations. Yep, that's it. By the way, the IG report that came out in 2019 explains why this step was taken and asks and answers the question why that was done according to the FBI playbook. But what he he did do in a way what he was hired to do. Keep the deflection strategy alive, which you heard in that exchange between Senator Graham and John. Provide material for the Russia-Trump denialists. But he failed to change the facts. And here they are. Russia attacked the United States election to help Trump. Trump and his aides helped that assault by denying it was happening and by welcoming it when it was underway. For seven years, the effort has been to confuse this basic set of facts. Durham doesn't dispute that basic set of facts. His report only goes to help those who say, all those other reports of the facts, all those other convictions, well, they never should have been found. But as they say, facts are stubborn things. So if you like this episode, I encourage you to subscribe so you get it every week. It comes out Wednesday mornings. Um, Also, you can listen to the namesake show or our sister show, The Middle, which is on the radio from 2 to 3 on Saturday afternoons. It's available as a podcast on the Red Apple Podcast Network or wherever you get podcasts. Um, Also, as I said, we welcome any kind of feedback that you have. Um, And if you uh, listen to the Saturday show, you can always call in and talk to me directly. I appreciate all the support for the show. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. (laughs) 